Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Thank you for coming out this evening. Uh, today's continuation of the last week. Last week we were able to have the flood waters recede. They were finally able to get off that boat after a full year, and uh, they made sacrifice to God. And uh, then He gave a covenant to Noah and his sons. And now we're going to pick up right after that with uh, chapter nine of Genesis. If you'd like to follow along. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is the command given to Adam and Eve after their creation. Yes, Adam was given instruction to work and not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But after Eve was created, the command to fill the earth was given. It was the first command given to both man and woman. This command is of such importance that after the flood, Noah's sons and thus their offspring are told yet again, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. As much as us Alaskans like being all alone outside with no one around, God does not want an empty world. So we have gone from six people, the families of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, to an estimated 8 billion people living on every continent and all the major islands. It sounds like we've been pretty successful at that command, but we weren't always so faithful to it and we needed a swift kick to obey our Lord. This is the event we now refer to as the Tower of Babel. Uh, before this event, though, uh, we are told about Noah and his family of what happened after they left the ark. There's no precise time given, but it must have been at least a decade since uh, grandchildren are mentioned in the story. In Genesis 9, 18, and 19. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. The Bible is very clear here that we are all descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All peoples of the world are going to come from six individuals. If you're Egyptian, you can trace your way back to Ham the Jews to Shem. And if you're from European stock like me, you're a descendant of Japheth. In our society, when we list out our children, we usually do in the birth order. So for example, my children are Miriam, Ruth, and Esther. Because this way of ordering is so ingrained uh, into our speech and our society, we just naturally assume that that's that the birth order of Noah's sons are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But this is not the case. The birth order is Japheth, Shem, and Ham. In Genesis 5.32, we are told that Noah fathered his children when he was 500 years old. Obviously, they're not triplets, because in Genesis 11, it states that Shem was, eight, uh, was 100 years old when he fathered Arphashad two years after the flood. That means that Shem was 98 when the flood ended, 97 when it started. 
Noah was 600 years old at the start of the flood, meaning that Noah was 503 when Shem was born. So obviously not triplets. Then as we later read in the Bible there, Ham's referred to as the youngest son of Noah. So why is the order not given chronologically? Well, sometimes the Bible lists out names and their importance. For example, we consistently read Moses and Aaron, not Aaron and Moses. Even just saying Aaron and Moses just sounds awkward because we're so used to saying Moses and Aaron because that's how they wrote it out in the Bible. But Moses is not the firstborn son. Also, in 1 Chronicles 128, we have the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. And then, immediately after that, we're given the genealogies of Ishmael before we get Isaac's genealogy. So we all know that Isaac was second, yet he was listed first. Because for the story the Bible is telling, he is more important. So what makes Shem the most important to our narrative today? Well, the Savior is going to be born from the line of Shem. So that makes him the most important. Ham is next because not for his good, but for his infamy and because he's the father of Canaan. Notice that Canaan is the only grandchild mentioned in this introduction. Genesis 9, 20 through 23. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. This awkward situation is a great example of how the Bible shows us that, that our heroes of the Bible are fallible and sinful people just as ourselves. This righteous man, blameless in his own generation, who walked with God, is now stripping down and getting blackout drunk in his tent. The text here doesn't explicitly say that what Noah was doing was wrong, but to the original readers and to us moderns, we immediately know that Noah's behavior was sinful. Some tried to explain away the apparent lack of chastisement of Noah's sin by saying that, well, Noah didn't know what would happen by drinking all that wine. They predicate this on translations such as the NRSV, the Message, CEV, and the HCSV, which translates uh, verse 920 as, Noah was the first to plant a vineyard. Um, I believe that that's a poor translation, and the committee of the HCSB agrees with me because in their 2017 edition, when they changed to just the Christian Standard Bible and dropped Holman from the name, they retranslated that verse and, and rendered it as, Noah began by planting a vineyard. Um, the Hebrew there, it, depending on your context, it could either mean you start something or it was the first of something. So that's the ambiguity there. Um, but they, in their new revision, changed it to then he started. Um, but here's why I don't think it's a good uh, idea to translate it as first, even though technically you could. 
is because in multiple places in the Bible, such as 1 Samuel 30 and Matthew 11, when the phrase eating and drinking is used, it's clearly referring to wine as the drink. When uh, teaching about his second coming, Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So I feel it's safe to assume here that when Jesus was saying eating and drinking, that he was meaning that they were eating and probably drinking wine, which if they were doing it in the time before the flood, Noah would have seen it and known about it. Um, I think that it's fair to assume that Noah knew what would happen if he drank that much wine. He knew that he would become intoxicated. He was over 600 years old. He wasn't six, right? He's, he's not stupid. We are, told, we are not told if this is a one-of event or if this has become a habit for him. Now, the text doesn't uh, immediately condemn Noah for the action. We're just given the details that matter for Noah's blessing and curses that he gives to his offspring. It'd be nice if we had all the details for every event in the Bible, but like Jesus said about the miracles of Jesus, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So for the sake of space, time, narrative, details are left out. Speculating too much on the unknowns can lead to weird views and thinking. And later we'll see some odd speculations when we study the rest of chapter 9. So remember back to verse 18. Ham is referred to as the father of Canaan. Here again, we see that he's paired with his youngest son. Why is that? Well, it's to let us know as the reader that Canaan's going to be soon involved with this story. Genesis 9, 24 through 29. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So Noah wakes up from his stupor, and he knows what has happened. Perhaps he was semi-conscious when Shem and Japheth covered up his shame. Maybe he heard Ham outside the tent gleefully telling his brothers about the compromising position that he found his father in. This is all speculation, and it's safe and rational speculation. But because of the scant details, there's been some pretty wild theories about what uh, Ham had done to Noah for him to declare a curse on his son Canaan. So some believe that Ham sexually assaulted his father, and they reason that since the Hebrew words used in Leviticus 20.17, seize her nakedness, is used euphemistically to refer to sex, and in fact in some translations, such as the NIV and NLT, they render it as, and they have sexual relations, rather than the word for word, and seize her nakedness, then that phrase, his, sees his nakedness, 
uh, it must refer to sex in this Genesis passage as well. I don't think that's a, a good assumption for two reasons. One, if it was just a figure of speech, then why does Shem and Japheth literally cover their father with a garment? And then two, the context of Leviticus 20.17, it's in the middle of a list of many other sexually prohibited acts. In Genesis, there's no talk of sexual morality preceding or following this event. And then another wild theory, this one was more popular in the Middle Ages, but wild theory that was tossed about was that Ham uh, castrated Noah. So unlike the other patriarchs, it's not mentioned that Noah had other sons and daughters and the genealogies like we see with Adam and Seth and even Shem. They assume that he probably should have had more children, but what would prevent him from having more offspring? Well, if he was castrated. So they claim that because Noah could not have a fourth son, that he curses Ham's fourth son. I know it's a kind of an absurd theory, and there's leaps so large that you could end up winning the Olympic long jump with this. But I bring it up because it's an example of why we shouldn't become so fixated on knowing every detail of the Bible because our imaginations can take us far away from the original intent of the story and from the truth. So why is Canaan and not Ham cursed? It says that Ham did his father wrong. It makes no mention of Canaan being present. And this is something that I have struggled uh, to understand as well. If it was Ham that dishonored Noah, why does Canaan seem to get the brunt of it? I don't fully know. And rather than give you guys my speculation, I'm just going to leave it as it is that Canaan has a, a curse spoken over him and that this was a real event that happened and there's natural consequences to that event that happened. The blessings that Noah pronounces, unfortunately, have been terribly misunderstood and misused. Canaan is to be the servant of Shem and Japheth. This line was used to justify was used by many to justify enslaving Africans to go work in the Americas. They reasoned that if Canaan was to be the servant of Shem and Japheth, and Ham did not receive a blessing like his brothers, then Ham and all his descendants should likewise be cursed. Africans are descendants of Ham, so they too should be servants. And well, hey, look at that. The us Europeans were descendants of Japheth. So naturally, they're supposed to serve us. In his 1843 book, Slavery as it Relates to the Negro, American Josiah Priest writes, The servitude of the race of Ham to the latest era of mankind is necessary to the veracity of God himself, as by it is fulfilled one of the oldest of the decrees of the scriptures, namely that of Noah, which placed the race of servants under other races. So people even espoused that Ham was born to be a slave to his brothers. All their reasonings is just like the ones people used with the mark of Cain as justification to have slaves. It's just made up wholesale. It's not found in the Bible. And um, they just did it because they desired wealth and they wanted to use the slaves to acquire it. The justifications, however flimsy, though, were a polite enough fiction to make themselves and others in society feel that they were morally in the right for having slaves. 
John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, was very heavily involved in the slave trade. He ended up working his way up to eventually becoming the captain of slaving vessels. Once he became a Christian and actually read his Bible, he discovered how wrong his previous line of work had been. He wrote Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade in 1788 to convince Parliament to abolish the English slave trade, in which he said, The slave trade was always unjustifiable, but inattention and interest prevented, for a time, the evil from being perceived. He repents of his past actions and makes the argument that no amount of money gained is worth it when it comes at the cost of blood. So if our past countrymen here in America had read their Bibles, instead of listening to people like Josiah Priest, they would have realized that their interpretation of Genesis 9 was wrong and would not have been so eager to enslave and devalue another fellow man. So what are we to make of this blessing? Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Well, that refers to our God, the one true God. The God of Shem is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They just hadn't been born yet, so he says God of Shem. Blessed be the Lord is easy for us to understand. Well, we read that in the Psalms many times. But what is this thing about Japheth being enlarged and dwelling in the tent of Shem? And what about Canaan being a servant? Um, there's a belief that the expansion of Japheth refers to territorial expansion. This view was very popular during the Enlightenment, um, although I feel like it was popular because it justified their colonial expansion. So here's a quote from John Gill's Exposition of the Bible. This is a commentary from the mid-1700s, um, referring to Japheth and uh, his descendants. To them belonged all Europe and Lesser Asia, Medea, which is present-day Iran, Iberia, Albania, part of Armenia, and all those vast countries to the north, not to say anything of the New World. And he's referencing North and South America there. So they saw the domination of the world by Europe as preordained by Noah's blessing. According to Philip T. Hoffman in his book, Why Did Europe Conquer the World?, uh, between 1492 and 1914, Europeans had conquered 84% of the world. That certainly sounds like a great enlargement. However, I don't think that that blessing was meant to be a prophecy about global, uh, global supremacy that would happen 4,000 years later. I think the enlargement is more immediate. Japheth and his descendants, they end up settling all along the Mediterranean coast and up into Europe during the biblical period. And we read about that there in, uh, with judges and in chronicles and kings and things like that. So I think that that, that promise, that prophecy that he would be enlarged, um, is not about that Europeans will expand and take over places, but more of that in the immediate, with the contemporaries of Israel, they would have a large territory. And so then, what about Canaan being a servant? Well, this is all fulfilled with uh, the Davidic period. So through the leadership of Joshua, when they returned from the wilderness, and King David, the Canaanites, they became subjugated and taken over by the Israelites, and thus they became the servants to Shem. As for Japheth dwelling in the tent of Shem, 
How does this come to pass? Well, this prophecy is fulfilled through Jesus. With the sacrifice of Jesus, Gentiles have been grafted into the family of Abraham, the line of Shem. We dwell with Shem in the glories of our Lord. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. What an interesting life he must have lived. To see civilization blotted out and then rebuilt again, to be rescued and preserved by God, to see your three sons multiply into nations. Noah walked with God. This phrase is only used for one other person in the Bible, and that is Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch did not die, yet Noah did. Was he not called up to God because of his incident of indecency and drunkenness in the tent with Ham? Perhaps, but there's not enough evidence in the Bible to do more than speculate on it. But that is interesting and something to think about. Genesis chapter 10, verse 1 through 5. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiris. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Targumah. The sons of, of Javan, Javan. Elisha, uh, sorry, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodonim. From these, the coastlands people spread into their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. So do any of those names jump out at you? Uh, Javan is the, pro- the progenitor of the Ionians, and that is the Greeks. Whenever that is found in the Bible, half the time they leave it as, uh, as Javan, and half the time they translate it as Greece, referring to the country. Um, and today, if you were a speaker of modern Hebrew, you would still use that word to refer to the country of Greece. So what about Ashkenaz? Well, today the majority of modern Jews are Ashkenazi Jews, but they're not actually descendants of Ashkenaz. Rather, Ashkenaz is Germany. After the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD, many defeated Jews were taken there to Central Europe. They then named themselves after the land that they were taken to. And then, of course, the other big name that pops out, made famous by the story of Jonah, Tarshish. So here we see from the beginning, they're setting up that whole Mediterranean region there. And then, I apologize if I get some names wrong, but there's a point for me reading all these names here. Genesis 10, 6 through 20. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabat, Ramah, and Sabteca. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. 
Rehoboir, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kalhuhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zimurites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So the sons of Ham's of Ham, it reads like the rogue gallery of Israel's enemies. You have Egypt, Babylon, Nineveh, Syria, the Philistine, Canaan, and of course all the ites. The Hamites, though, they're industrious, they're clever, they're strong, powerful, intelligent, and very worldly. It's, uh, it's hard to not see a parallel between the Hamites and the Canaanites. Back in chapter 4 when we read about Cain after he killed his brother, the great cities that he built. Very striking similarity here with Cain and Canaan and Ham's uh, other children. They end up building a very strong civilization, but it's without God, just like Cain's civilization was without God. Now, if you grew up with the King James Version, or New King James, or maybe you read the NASB and its other variants, you would have noticed, if you're following along, that Egypt was not from that list, but instead uh, uh, Mizraim, was listed as a son of Ham. So instead of translating it into Egypt, like most translations do, they kept it the original Hebrew word, and they only translate it to Egypt when referring to the place and not the genealogies. So if you grew up with the old King James, that's the the reason for the discrepancy. It's not that they made up a person, they just didn't translate his name. Genesis 10, 21 through 32. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, uh, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Uh, Arphaxad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, uh, Selfif, and I'm going to skip those names because those people aren't actually important. And here we go. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Safar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these to the nations spread abroad 
on the earth after the flood. Again, we're seeing sons mentioned out of order. Shem is referred to as the father of all the children of Eber, even though he's Eber's great-grandfather. So whenever we see this, we know that means that person is significant. Eber is where we get the term Hebrew from that we eventually see Abraham referred to as. Eber has two sons, Peleg and Joktan. If Peleg is mentioned first and there's additional information about him, well, then how come we didn't read his lineage in this genealogy? Well, we save that for later to connect Abraham to Shem. Genesis 10 and 11 is not in chronological order. It's a list of the descendants of Shem, but just a partial list like we said, Ham and Japheth and the nations they became. We have the story of why they have different languages and then, most importantly, the genealogy that will connect to the coming Messiah. This story is being told thematically, not chronologically. So we ended 9 with Noah blessing and cursing his sons. And to explain what happened to his sons, we got those genealogies. The table of nations, it ends every brother's section by saying, those were the offspring of their own languages and land. So how did we get all those languages if they all came from the same family? From the Tower of Babel. And after we learn about the Babel, we need to know how God's promise to Eve is going to be fulfilled and where the Savior will come from. So then we finally get Shem's genealogy and the one that will lead from Abraham and thus to Jesus. And that's the reasoning for why 10 and 11 are not chronological. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. Here we see humanity disobeying God and ignoring his command to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They are being fruitful, they are multiplying, but they are not filling the earth. Worse yet, they want to puff themselves up and make a name for themselves. Have you ever had an issue arise because of a miscommunication? Have you ever tried to communicate with someone who spoke a different language? 
In college, I went on a choir trip over to Europe, and our first stop was Prague to hold a concert with a local choir. And because we were poor college kids, we stayed in the apartments of the local choir members. And we were having our conversations in English because who knows Czech, right, besides the Czech people. But we kept getting hung up in our conversations. And I couldn't understand what they meant sometimes, even though they were speaking English. Finally, they pulled out their Czech English dictionary and pointed to the word, read people, definition, somebody from Vietnam. Oh, okay, Vietnamese. I understand what you're trying to tell me now. We were using the same language, but not the same words. Before Babel, everyone clearly understood each other, but there were not dialects. Today, we have many countries that speak English as their first language, yet have different words, like gasoline and petrol, or subway and tube. I'm not here today, but we've put an Australian one in there. Flip-flops, what we call them, thongs. But even in our own country, we have these, defini- these differences. Everyone up here knows the right way to call that thing is a snow machine. But yet everyone that lives down south calls them a snowmobile. Right? I thought we all were American-speaking American, right? So that's what it's meaning when it says that they spoke the same language and the same words, is that there was no, there was no regional differences. There was no dialects to it. It's not, it's not being redundant by saying same language, same words. It's just being more precise that it's, everyone is completely on the same page. Rather than let man build up a great city to live in, a testament to his own efforts, a blatant sign that man is choosing to disobey, God then intervenes. It's not that God is against tall buildings, as misinformed atheists like to say in order to belittle the Bible. It is the intent. Repeatedly through the Bible, we see that it is the heart and the intent of the person that matters more than the action. Think back to Cain's sacrifice. He gave a sacrifice, but he didn't really mean it, right? Or think of the words of Samuel. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Meaning that God is wanting from the Israelites obedience for them to listen to him rather than them going through the motions of sacrifice. And you need New Testament example. Reflect on Jesus' teaching. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what was the purpose behind building this tower? Well, it wasn't to provide housing. They weren't trying to create office space. They were wanting to glorify man. They didn't want to disperse. They wanted to build for self. They said, we do not want to be dispersed over the face of the earth and decided to build that tower instead. God says, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. 
and nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. God is not afraid of man's technological development, nor is he opposed to it. This sinful act of purposely ignoring God's command to fill the earth is just the start of how hardened and contrary to man God will become. If left alone, they will grow further and further from God. Notice that once they have their languages confused, that the Lord, and the Hebrew there, Yahweh, which is our God, he disperses them. Man didn't do it of their own volition. He was dispersed by God himself. If you've ever seen parents in action, you, this probably seems pretty familiar to you. Right? You can either do what you're told, or you can have a timeout, and you still have to clean up your toys. Right? This is the same sort of situation there. There's an easy way and a hard way. And man, once again, chose the hard way, thinking that he did not have to listen to God. So why was it so important for God to break the people apart? I think it was so that he could have a people to call to himself, to have a people set apart to show the world who he is. Think of how often and easily the Israelites fell captive to the false gods of their neighbors. Imagine now if they were all together and communicated with ease. Imagine if they were living in a grand city with colossal monuments and buildings made to glorify man. God broke the people apart to demonstrate his glory. Through his chosen people, the Savior could be revealed to the world and offered to all. Genesis 11 then ends with the genealogy of Shem. Like the genealogy that we read in chapter 5, we have a pattern here. When X had lived A years, he fathered Y. When uh, X lived after he fathered Y, B years, and had other sons and daughters. So it starts with Shem, and ends with Terah and the children he produced, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And like the genealogy of Noah, we're given the years of the, the lives of these men. Why? Well, this is because this is the line to the Messiah. The other genealogies matter, but not as much as this one. We need the years to show that there is an unbroken line from Adam to Jesus, that all the prophecies and promises will come true and that they're not falsified. It shows that these are real historical events involving real people. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram and his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they had come to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And now we see the Bible transitioning from prehistory 
and the explanations for our world and how it came to be, and it will now focus on God's chosen people. The rest of Genesis follows the lives of those who had become the Israelites, the people set apart to show the nations God's love, mercy, and redemption, that family that we are now adopted into. Lord, we thank you that despite man's sinful heart, our prideful heart, and our haughtiness towards you, that you still provided a way for our redemption. Help us to be thankful to you for our every breath, for without you there would be no life within these bodies. We are grateful that your word is true, that your promises and covenants made to us will always be honored. We are overjoyed that in spite of our evil hearts, you have still called us to you, to love you, to honor you, and to worship you. We thank you that we have been caught up into the plan of your redemption. Amen. So thank you for taking this multi-month journey through the beginning of Genesis with me. Um, I know it's got tough passages and some unanswered questions and things, but I appreciate you guys coming and listening. Um, I just find a lot of it just fascinating because these actions that people took have repercussions that we still deal with. And um, it's just interesting when you think about, you know, how much we accomplish in our lifetimes. What would it be like for some of these people like like Abram's father, Tehran, who, uh, Tara, who was over 200 years old, or Noah that was almost 1,000? And like, did the monotony really grind on them a lot of, oh man, I got to get up and I've got to, gather wheat again. Oh, I got to grind flour again. I got to bake this bread again, right? And so it's it's a thing where if you start speculating on that and thinking of what it would be like in your shoes that, yeah, it really is a mercy of God's that he cut man's life down to 120 because, you know, when you're in imperfection because of the fall and sin, you know, life can really drag on and it can be a, a can turn into a burden, whereas the original intent of being in the garden and there was no sin and that there was no death, yeah, you could be in there an awful long time if everything's the way it's supposed to be. But it's it, life's a little tougher when now there's thorns. So I, I appreciate that you guys have uh, journeyed with me through this, and I didn't know if you guys had any discussion you wanted or questions about tonight. Yeah, so because what they what they're doing is they there's the blessing and curse, and then immediately they're saying, okay, here's the repercussions of the blessing and curse, where those different sons end up, and then now we're going to explain how those different groups came about, and then we're going to do the the line to the Messiah. So it's broken up. It's it's not the same because it does say according to their language. But then the next chapter you read and it says, everyone spoke the same language. You go, well, wait a second. I thought you said they had their own language. It's not told in order. It's like in how Genesis 1 and 2 have things that overlap. Um, And then also Genesis 6 and 7 with 
the ark and flood story, there, there's uh, retellings and things that overlap. And so that happens in Genesis in the beginning here of that you're told the story like with the creation, you're told it. You're told it again with more details, but it kind of overlaps a little bit. So you had some details here, and then when the story starts over again, you're kind of going back in time. Same thing with the ark, and that's the same thing that happens here is that they give you all these, hey, this is what it all turned out to be, but it came after after that. The, um, Peleg, when it says that he was born in the, the, when the world was divided, uh, a lot of people think that what they're referring to there is that that was when Babel happened, was when, when Peleg was born, and that's when, I mean, not his birth was that, but he was born at the time that then it was split. So it's not that those people weren't born yet, but they hadn't had the different languages until Babel. Yep. Um, it makes it it makes it sound like everyone was there. Yeah, I mean maybe not every son, but it makes it sound like that. Yeah, the the bulk of of the earth at the time was deciding that hey, this is what we're gonna do. But but yeah, like when it brings up the mention of of Nimrod, it shows that you know because he would have had a, a lengthier life. These all these people have longer lives uh, until you get to about the time of Abraham. You know, you see, he's, he's starting in Africa, but then he goes up. Well, he didn't start in Africa. He started Middle East, down into Africa, then goes over, comes back up, and he was just all over the place. And so um, there must have been legends told of him, and that's why it has that line there of, you know, and this is the same Nimrod, the mighty hunter in, in front of the Lord. Um. So that's that's some of the issue that you have with some of this in, in Genesis is that it makes references to uh, stories and things that had been told orally that we don't hear anymore because the original audience was the uh, Israelites who had left Egypt. Any other thoughts? Thank you, and I know I pronounced some of those names wrong there, so thank you for bearing with me, but I wanted you to hear that, like, when you then later go in the Bible, all the troubles that Israel has and the people that draw them into idolatry and things, it's all coming out of uh, the line of Ham. So, um, just so that you guys were able to see that connection there. Japheth in the Bible, he's basically just... Ignored. Eh, you're over in the Mediterranean, you're up in Europe, and we'll come, we'll revisit you when the Romans come down, basically, type of thing. So, um, so most of the, the Old Testament is just basically Shem and Ham descendants battling it out. Or what? Um, there's a couple different theories. So, um, uh, so there's there's the belief that th- there's some that are from Shem and some that are from Ham is is the belief. And, um, I don't think so, but I didn't delve too deep into that. And uh, one of the theories is that uh, that uh, 
the the Sinites, S-I-N-I-T-E-S, that those are, uh, that that's referring to uh, the Chinese. And so in Isaiah, it makes reference to uh, them being far in the east. There's a reference there. Um, and then also, uh, like, the word for, for China. So, like, if you're going to have English-Chinese relations, it's always is written as S-I-N-O, Sino, Anglo relations, right? And so you'll go, oh, the root word that they're using for China comes from the, the Sinites. So that's, that's one theory. Um, but there, the, people are starting to make more connections now that there's genetic testing. And what they do is that uh, they're called haplogroups, and they're different sections of genome that then they're finding that are in specific groups of people. And that's sort of now how they're seeing how everyone is connected together. Um, and that's being done both on just like the secular and the religious side people finding that like, oh, well, these people groups and these people groups are actually related. Um, and we got a taste of that when people started studying linguistics, that people found out, oh, well, these groups that are separated by hundreds of miles actually shared a language together at one point before they split, like uh, like uh, Hungarian and Finnish, right? You don't think of them as being connected, but those are. And then, uh, you know, here in Alaska with uh, Athabascan people, um, they're like Navajo, right? And it's because they, some stayed in Alaska and then other ones kept going south and uh, people started studying linguistics and found, oh, these people have a really similar language. And then people started looking at DNA and going, oh, well, these people are just practically cousins. And so um, it's a thing where, where modern science and, and research is not disproving the Bible. It's just more making the point that the Bible had that, that we're really all descended from one big family and that's part of the thing of such a shame that people were using this passage about family as a way to justify enslaving people and saying that they're less than human and this and that. It's like, oh, no, they're your brother, right? Uh, like the one Christmas hymn, you know, uh, it was written by an abolitionist. He's got the line, you know, the slave is your brother, right? And you need to repent. That's in the, the Christmas hymn there um, because... If you read your Bible, you find out, no, all peoples on the earth, they're from the same family, and they all need to have the same respect and dignity. There's not different races. It's just all one human race. you got different clans, but it's all all one. And then you, you get that with, you know, Paul when he's talking to the Greeks and things, that he's saying, you know, the whole world came from one man, right, referring to Adam. So it's a thing where people coming up with justifications for slavery, they're not reading the Bible fully or correctly because if you read all through it, it's pretty clear that we're all a family that now because of sin has been broken up and is dysfunctional, but we can all be adopted into into the family of God and live together.
Um, I, yeah, I, I don't think that it was a, like, that he brought them away, like when you hear, um, oh, I'm forgetting, the apostle that was talking to the Ethiopian, and then he gets whisked away, or, or like, what? Philip, yeah, Philip, or like with Elijah that God made him run super fast. I don't think it was so much that, I think it was more of, he put the drive and desire of people, of, I need to get my own space away from everybody, and you know, kind of made in that sort of desire for people to move and be a pioneer to the new place. Um, that's personally what I think, just because um, if you just look at the physical evidence that's left behind, um, people didn't show up in North America right away. Like, it it took time and people coming across. And so that's just my personal thing is that I think when it said that God dispersed them, I think that he he put the impetus into people that I need to... I need to move away, and I'm going to be with my people in this area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it but it took a long it took a long time though. Is, is that you know because if you if you look at the evidence on the ground, like it took it took a few generations for people to get down from Alaska down into the lower forty-eight and then South America and all that. And so I think it just it he he put the drive into people of I need to move to my own space. And then also then wars between people uh cause people to move um and and migrate. Hmm? Yeah. Yeah. I mean maybe some people maybe some people sailed too but um yeah yeah i mean some people could have sailed that's how the you know uh the whole micronesia area and how people would have had to get to australia and the um polynesian islands people would have had to do ships for that but um but getting over to north america everyone just walked which would be crazy back in the day to just come to Alaska with nothing. It's not the easiest place to live. We're a little spoiled with all our modern tools. Any other thoughts? Well, thank you guys, and we'll uh, relieve the workers downstairs, let them send the kids up. But you guys have a good rest of your week and safe drives back home. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.